This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, public schools have an updated COVID-19 case tracker, which shows quarantines are up while cases are on the decline at New Orleans public schools. A report released late last month by NOPD shows that of the 41 vehicle pursuits the department engaged in in 2019, the majority of those chases were not for violent offenses in contravention of NOPD policy. And this week, the ACLU of Louisiana sued the Louisiana State Police over its refusal to release documents related to facial recognition technology. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining me on the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hey, Nick. Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Marta, first up with you in education. NOLA Public Schools recently upgraded its public-facing COVID-19 case tracker, revealing an additional 140 cases of the virus in students and staff since September. You had been aware of 476 unique cases prior to the upgrade based on weekly reports beginning September 21, excluding holidays. Now the district's public dashboard shows 616. What prompted the upgrade first? Uh, so we have some new uh, board members who were sworn in in January, newly elected Orleans Parish School Board members. And they, in addition to some longstanding board members, uh, were, were really, you know, really wanted the district to be providing more information to families and wanted them to be providing cumulative case counts so they could track them over time. Now the district has done that. And you can see both cumulative totals, uh, new cases week by week, and you can also you know, break that down individually by school site. Okay, but that resulted in a pretty big jump. So what are they saying about the discrepancy? Right, so we were surprised uh, to see that jump. Basically, I went back to every single individual email announcement because that's how they had been announcing new cases. When I totaled those up, I got 476. There was kind of no public facing record of this because the district was only showing active cases on its tracker and they would update that weekly and then all that data would disappear. Now when I go through in total, there are 616 cases that they have counted in the past five months. What kind of concerns is this raising? I talked to the United Teachers of New Orleans. They are happy to, that there's more uh, transparent information out there. I think the concerns are you know, why, why didn't this happen sooner? And then, you know, there's, there's some understandable reasons why there would be this gap, right? They didn't report those weekly totals during holiday weeks. And additionally, sometimes there are backlogs of cases and also schools self-report these cases. So we didn't necessarily always know when things were happening right when they were happening. So I think, I think the concerns are that it would have been good to have this information on time when it was happening, but People yeah. are coming out now. And that's something I've always wondered about since the beginning of this. They, they had this data. I mean, it's just as simple as keeping a spreadsheet over time. And you were tallying up what they were reporting. So, you, you know, you demonstrated how simple it is to, to have done this. Um, so why, why didn't they? What has been their explanation in the past? Right. What is even the point of not putting that publicly facing? I mean, you know, they yeah. say things like, 
the way they've explained it, they say, we want parents to have like, the most up-to-date snapshot of the schools. And parents can understand that a case in September isn't active now, so why, why not have that information so people can see how the, these cases have gone up and down in schools? I mean, it sounds to me like they since didn't want a bottom line number showing up in there that was in the hundreds. I would venture to guess exactly that. <laughs> uh, with the UK variant, and it's it's established that it is in New Orleans, are they doing anything new about that and and the upcoming holiday? So, no, I've asked them a few times because we've, we've seen the, those numbers rise from five cases to six to eight in, across the state of Louisiana. We know there's a ton of UK variants in Florida. Um, and we also know that there was a case at Tulane. The district has not specifically changed anything about their operations. Um, they just say that, you know, they're aware of this, that they're working with the local health department. It's something that they're keeping an eye on. Um, I do think, like all of us, we're all curious what's going to happen over the Mardi Gras holiday. And it's just something something to keep an eye on. So as of now, the high school kids are still still set to go back to school after Mardi Gras. Right. Yep. They'll be reporting after Mardi Gras break, um, or at least hopefully. Um, I, I guess they probably will be because we wouldn't have enough information about spread during Mardi Gras by that time. Right. The lag. I mean, if there is going to be a spike, it's going to be two weeks after the holiday. Right. And, and we all saw that report, I think, that came out that said, you know, one case last year led to uh, however many thousand cases in the New Orleans area. So, right, right. You know, obviously the city officials have tamped down on a lot of that, you know, places are fenced off, streets are going to be closed, enforcement's going to be up, bars are going to be shut down. So hopefully that doesn't happen. But, you know, certainly something we'll keep an eye on. I think a lot of people are expecting something of a spike, um, you know, in the weeks after Mardi Gras. I think what they'll probably be looking at next week is, are we're at this point in time, you know, when we're not yet reflecting the Mardi Gras spike data, are we still trending downward before the potential spike? Well, as you said, you'll keep an eye on it for us. Thank you, Marta. Thank you. Nick, a report released this week shows New Orleans Police Department vehicle chases were way up in 2019. What is the report that was released and does it cover things other than vehicle chases? Yeah, so the report released is part of the NOPD uh, consent decree every year. They're required um, under the consent decree to release these these annual reports, one of which uh, covers use of force incidents. And yeah, these incidents are, you know, anytime someone uses a firearm or uses a taser or throws a firearm, or I think they refer to it as, as tackling. So anytime someone has to use force to arrest someone. Uh, so it covers all those incidents um, in addition to vehicle pursuits. Okay, and tell me about the findings on vehicle chases. So what was interesting um, about the findings is that so I, there were there were forty one vehicle pursuits in two thousand nineteen, and they give the the reason for each of these pursuits the underlying cause so things like you know if an armed robbery or something like that. But but the majority of them were for nonviolent violations, and and seventeen of those forty one were for traffic violations. And that's interesting because that that goes against NOPD policy, which is that you can only pursue a, a suspect if they're they're suspected um, of a violent crime, and and even if they're suspected of a violent crime, an officer needs to first determine that 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 suspect is an imminent danger to um, you know either other officers or or, um, or other citizens, and then also get approval from a supervisor. So how these 
these chases got initiated and whether or not they, they got approval is sort of unclear from the report, but there were clearly the majority of them. Oh, interesting. Just a little background on this. This all goes back to the federal consent decree that's over the uh, New Orleans Police Department, one of several consent decrees that, that city agencies or parish agencies are involved in. So one of the provisions of the consent decree is in its use of force mandates is that the department uh, was to develop a policy that banned car chases in most circumstances and in and most all circumstances for nonviolent crimes. So uh, a year or so after that was mandated in the consent decree, that was written into NOPD policy, and it's been policy for six or seven years now. Okay. Nick, you said something that, that piqued my interest. Um, I, I think you may have suggested that before, prior to, to engaging in a, in a high-speed pursuit, the officers have to call in and say, it, is it okay? Can, can we get to get permission to do it? Yeah, exactly. yeah, that's exactly right. They need to call in to, to a supervisor and, and basically get, get approval for, for the chase. And the report wasn't clear of, of whether they did, in fact, do that and receive permission? No, it's, it's not clear. I mean, that was one of the things that I was hoping to find out more from NOPD about, which I wasn't able to, was you know, how many of these chases were considered sort of unauthorized use of force. Or, or rather, were just at least considered to be in violation of NOPD policy. So in the use of force report, it outlines um, how many unauthorized use of forces there were um, in 2019. I believe there were, there were 13 incidents of unauthorized use of force. So we know that there were 21 incidents of, of NOPD chasing a, a vehicle for a traffic violation, which would appear to be in contradiction of their policy. Whether or not all those 21, even if they were considered in some violation and NOPD took action, it's unclear if they were all considered use of force. So huh. a vehicle pursuit, we know, can be considered use of force. Definitely, if, if someone is injured or, or someone is killed, and there actually was one incident in 2019, where three people were killed and we know that that, that incident was considered an un, unauthorized use of force. But it's unclear if those, if those other incidents would, would even show up in this report, even if the NOPD you know, took action and, and they were in violation of policy, if that makes sense. Does the report show or uh, delineate any discipline? No, it doesn't. And yeah, I have a, a public records request pending to, to get more information on each of the incidents and, and whether or not the officers were disciplined. Okay, and what does the NOPD's, what do they say about this, the policy hampering their ability to be good, to do good policing? The, the department as a, uh, you know, as a whole hasn't, hasn't said anything, but police union president has suggested that, that, you know, this is a detriment to public safety, that officers aren't able to, to go after criminals when they see them committing crimes, and it's a kind of acts as a sort of free pass, and we know the, the uh, former district attorney, Leon Canizero, has, has suggested something similar when he was um, presenting his plan to reduce juvenile crime and, and uh, specifically car burglaries and break-ins that the fact that, you know, maybe some of these juveniles know that the NOPD won't pursue a high-speed chase uh, kind of could encourage encourage that sort of behavior. But on the other hand, people can look at the kind of high-risk nature of these things and, and say, 
you know, we need to reserve it for when someone's really in danger, when a really serious crime has been committed. Right. Has Jason Williams said anything about that or did he when he was campaigning? Not that I ever saw. You know, I don't think that it was kind of a main issue that that came up during the campaign and it isn't necessarily sort of something that the DA regularly has a hand in uh, shaping or, or, or sort of dictating. Although, you know, he has talked about cracking down on, on police misconduct and making sure that all the arrests that have that are made have been, you know, constitutionally above board and, and things like that. But I don't think I ever heard him talk specifically about um, vehicle pursuits. Okay. Something else that I found really curious about this whole thing is that this is a report that was just released and it was about 2019 data. So it took them a year and a full month, 13, maybe 13 plus months to write this report about the data that they had. Is there any public data that's available now for 2020 that you can see the number of vehicle chases? And why why does it take so long for them to write this report? On, on the why it takes took long, I don't, so Nick was unable to get any comment from the NOPD. Um, I believe um, we have seen some indication, I believe in a, a, a Mill.com reporter on Twitter said that the city, if I remember correctly, was blaming the 2019, late 2019 cyber attack, which we've been told at least locked up many data systems for several months over the last year. So this is unusually late. It's, it doesn't usually take this long. Okay, so presumably it, it'll be released. 2020's data will be released sooner than a year from now. One would hope. Okay. Yeah. Do you have any information on vehicle chases that they've been involved in in 2020? No, nothing yet. It will be interesting to see because one possibility, I think, is there, there was a high-profile uh, chase and crash in 2019. Um uh, the, the police uh, chased a vehicle that they suspected to be stolen. It um, crashed into Unity One Beauty Salon and, and it killed the two teenage drivers of the car and, and one woman inside. So in the investigation into that incident, the investigator found that this was a, a, a pattern of behavior for at least those officers involved, that they had been involved in other uh, chases in which they didn't inform their supervisors they actually turned off their body cam, body worn cameras, and turned off their in car cameras, uh, right. which both violate NOPD policy. So, in, in that investigation and the suggestion that you know there may have been more incidents, I think the, the chief of police said that he had discovered you know several incidents just in the weeks prior. I do wonder whether or not you know in 2019 there was sort of a, a review of of cases or or some kind of more stringent measures put in place to kind of you know, weed out these these uh, pursuits that may have been in violation of policy, and which could sort of explain why why there was this increase in recognition of, of vehicle pursuits, at least. And you wonder if the data going back a few years, really, if, if they had, you know, taken a closer look or, or sort of put in more, more strict measures, maybe those would have been higher as well. Hmm. Um, maybe those things really were, weren't taking place. It's hard, it's hard to say. But there is evidence, you know, even from the NOPD's own sort of admission that sometimes these things don't get, get caught and don't get tracked. And sometimes we may not know about any of them until someone files a lawsuit. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. 
You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. As an advocate for openness, we provide readers with the source documents used in our reporting, inviting them to check and challenge our work or to build on it through their own research. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Michael, this week the ACLU filed a lawsuit against the Louisiana State Police for their refusal to release facial recognition records. What are the steps that led up to this suit? What prompted this week's action? So, so the Fusion Center is this um, statewide um, I- I- intelligence gathering service that um, you know law enforcement, local law enforcement around the state can utilize. And I believe just by reading the lawsuit, what happened is that um, an attorney with the AC- ACLU heard in court uh, a Louisiana police, a Louisiana state police trooper talk about the use of facial recognition, which at the time for them was the first time they'd heard of the Fusion Center using facial recognition. So they put in a public records request at the end of 2019, a very broad request for documents relating to the facial recognition program, as well as some training provided by a private company that developed the software. The the public records request was split into two parts and each part was given a different denial. So the first one that was saying, you know, all documents referencing facial recognition, and they give examples. So any meeting agendas, communications between your office and elected elected leaders, any analyses, um, and they basically said they didn't have it. Um, they didn't have any of those documents. I, the Louisiana State Police would not uh, respond uh, to our questions for this story. I, I'm not really sure what happened with that request. I have seen in the past different offices try to get out of, of you know, fulfilling a public records request by arguing that documents are primarily maintained by a different agency or a different office. And just because they are in possession of it doesn't mean that they are the ones that are in control of it, the maintenance of it. So I don't know if that's what happened here. I've been given that excuse before to to not get documents. Um, But yeah, basically they just said blanketly, we we don't have anything you're looking for, Um, which is surprising given how broad the request is. Usually to a request this broad, if they were gonna deny it, they would say it would be too broad and overly burdensome and too expensive to fulfill here they're just saying we don't have any of it. How were the emails uncovered? So a few months ago, we actually dealt with a, a different um, instance in which the ACLU was trying to get records um, related to facial recognition. So basically, it, it came out recently that the New Orleans Police Department was using this service from the Fusion Center um, to, to utilize facial recognition, which we reported. So we do have emails from that um, that the ACLU was able to obtain from the, the city of New Orleans that show NOPD officers sending emails to a Fusion Center email requesting facial recognition services. And so they argue that those communications fall well in line with their first request. Right, which is saying, therefore, this is the, these are the records that we're saying. Exactly, like there's at least 
one record, you know, right. and you know they, they they show more than that, but they're saying that you know a blanket uh, we don't have anything um, is is super unlikely given that we have these emails. Okay, so now tell us about the exemption to a law that the state says this is why you don't get to have these records. Yeah, so so the second request was for any documents referen- referencing a training. Uh, that a company called Ademia, uh, it could be Ademia, I'm not really sure on the pronunciation, um, had provided to the Louisiana State Police regarding um, facial recognition. So for for that second request, um, they ended up citing an exemption to the state public records law. The language in in the Louisiana state statute is um, for, quote, records containing security procedures, investigative training, information or aids, investigative techniques, investigative technical equipment or instructions on the use thereof. So they say that for this training given by this private company, that exemption applies. And why is the ACLU saying that 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 shouldn't apply? Um, The the ACLU, it puts out a number of legal arguments for why that exemption shouldn't apply. But I I mean, I think that there was a quote kind of at the bottom of the statement that, that was pretty telling. I think I think that their reaction was largely about, you know, taking together these two um, excuses, the first being that you don't have any records, and then um, this second exemption that they disagree with. They say taken together, it, it, it kind of shows that they're trying to get around um, showing these documents. So, so I'll just read from the, the lawsuit here. Although portions of the uh, exception may apply to a portion of those records, a blanket claim of a broad exemption was neither justified nor appropriate. Um, and then it says... LSP's reliance on a blanket inapplicable exemption coupled with its false claim that it maintains uh, no responsive documents shows a deliberate attempt to shirk the agency's obligation under the public records law Mm. and cloak the fusion center's operations in secrecy. So, uh, you know, some of their um, their arguments seem to be taking both of these together and saying that this was kind of a bad faith response and that, you know, they were kind of looking for a way to not send these documents over. Okay. Michael, speaking as a journalist, both personally and for the lens, what is it like reporting on these kinds of issues in New Orleans and in Louisiana? We've been reporting on surveillance for a long time now. um, And I think that, you know, something that we've kind of hit on over and over again is that when it comes to surveillance, there are countries, there are U.S. cities um, that put oversight, you know, in a more formal role, you know, an actually funded oversight accountability role that that might be within government, that might have a citizen oversight board, but that the government is participating in. And I think that over the past few years um, of covering this, you know, it really is all in the hands of both, you know, advocates like the ACLU and the media, like The Lens, um, to do their own digging and and to try and provide that oversight. Um, You know, of course, it's not we are a watchdog publication, but that's not the same as a government oversight body. We don't have automatic access to this, you know, state contracts and records. We don't have full-time accountants that can look through um, invoices and purchase orders for us. Um, so I think that groups like the ACLU and publications like The Lens um, have been trying to fill a role that in other places is, again, a lot more formalized um, and is a lot you know, better funded. Well, yeah, I mean, the role we're trying to fill, 
you know, in our case, is simply trying to disclose information about what is going on with the various surveillance systems. And, and that's been part of the issue is that it, there's no single oversight body, you know, even within the city of New Orleans, it overlaps several departments. And then you get beyond that, and we find that a lot of the surveillance actually overlaps entirely different governments. It overlaps the state government and the city government. Because it's so decentralized, it makes it very, very difficult for citizens to track exactly what is going on with it, what technology is being used, what's being added, what partnerships exist. Um, and that's the, the role the, the lens has been trying to fill. And you know, the ACLU is interested in the uh, civil rights implications, but you know, by virtue of getting into the civil rights side of this, they're, they're also uncovering information. Right. And I think a case like this just illustrates how difficult it can be to get this information because we're all reliant on the information when it comes to what we don't know about we're, we're reliant on the information that the government is willing to give us if the NOPE had not been eventually willing after initially denying uh, if it had not been eventually willing to give these records uh, give up these records then nobody would have known that the, the state police likely had them Right. 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 And Michael and Nick, I think you guys have just, and Charles, have done such a good job at chipping away at all these uses. And I'm, I'm sure you know and are thinking that there's more out there. But I think first of, obviously, the facial recognition that, the, you know, NOPD said they weren't using, but they're using through other agencies, just as concrete examples. And then I go back to that story where um, a public defender disclosed that, you know, a surveillance camera was zooming in from blocks away on someone. And, you know, we, we had no idea what the power of those surveillance cameras were. And to, to kind of follow up on all that, I mean, I guess, you know, if you look at a place like Seattle, um, you know, their city government puts out a report every year, um, you know, saying what surveillance resources the city has. Um, all year they're reviewing, you know, all these pieces of software that the city is obtaining and that it's had for years and ruling whether it should be, you know, surveillance and, and whether that whether offices that use that software should have to report their usage to them. So in that case, I mean, I think that allows the media there to focus more on, okay, here's what exists. Like, do we think that this is an appropriate technology for us to use or how is it being used or what are the examples of how this has impacted people? But I do think that here we've been really just trying to clarify what exists. That's been kind of the main mission for years now. And again, that just goes differently in different places. Right. And what the public does or what the ACLU as one agency does with this information is not up to the lens, but the fact that you're doing it, the fact that, that you're you're the instrument that allows this to happen is a, an example of democracy at work. Democracy dies in darkness or whatever. Exactly. Washington yeah. Post. So thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. Oh, thank you. All these stories this week were so good. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Carolyn. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.